Good morning. I'm Dr. Eva Doyle. I direct a Master of Public Health degree with specialization in community health education here at Baylor, and I'm delighted uh, to be introducing to you our speakers for this session, as you can see, entitled Global Cooperation and Public Health. And we've decided to reverse the order this morning from what you're seeing, but we're going to begin with Dr. Holmedes and then uh, move from there to Dr. Warner. Uh, so I would just like to introduce to you uh, Dr. Nuria Holmedes. She is an associate professor of Management and Policy and Community Health Sciences at the El Paso campus of the University of Texas Health Science, speaking to us this morning about globalization and public health. So we'll see if we can get very quickly to that. Thank you very much. I want to thank the organizers for giving me the opportunity of coming to Baylor. And uh, I thought I would go first because we will define a little bit what's globalization. And different people use different definitions of globalization. And the first thing I want to say is that we talk about globalization a lot recently, but that's not a new phenomenon. And those of us who come from Spain know it. <laughs> quite well, and the Latin Americans know it quite well, uh, because we conquered, we say we conquered Latin America <laughs> in the Middle Ages. So, But at any rate, the new characteristics of globalizations changed during the 1970s, and that's what I'm going to talk about a little bit. But uh, obviously, different people define globalization differently depending on what's your context. Some people say that it's the phenomenon of economic interdependence, and we see a lot of goods and services being traded across borders, and that has increased. It's $1 to $2 trillion daily. It's huge. Other people say, well, you know, we all look alike. You go to Thailand, and you see the same handcrafts that you can find in um, Mexico, and you see the same TV movies. So the cultures are blending. So we become less of nationalistic or less culturally appropriate. I probably like better this third definition. It's the process of integration across countries or the creation, really, of a global marketplace. And even when we talk about a melting pot of cultures, like you can go to McDonald's in Russia or in Mozambique or, or in Spain, or you can see the same movies in Mozambique that you see here, what we see is that there have been transnationals behind that that have spread that culture. Hollywood has been interested in going to other countries for economic reasons. So have the nutrition industry and other companies. So there seems to be an economic interest behind uh, that integration, and that's not much different of what the Spaniards were doing when they went to Latin America in the Middle Ages. Now, what are the characteristics of contemporary globalization? Well, we all talk about uh, the same, basically, policies for the entire world. We like trade liberalization. We are dealing with financial deregulation all around the world. We try to support our local industries very often with very little success because the transnational corporations are bigger than many individual countries. So they end up 
dominating what countries can and cannot do. Uh, there are structural adjustments. There are policies that you go from country to country and they start looking very similar. And that's why we now talk more about globalization. Behind this creation of a global marketplace, and that's what I want to stress today, that's not something that has happened naturally. There are, we have created a structure that allows it. And so the power of a given government has been limited by these superpower structures. And they participate in those superpower structures, but they have a different level of decision making. And what are those institutions? Well, we have the Bretton Woods institutions that were created just after second, the Second World War. And here we have the World Bank that in healthcare didn't play a big role until the end of the 1970s. And at the, beginning, at the end of the 1970s, we started with nutrition policies and some family planning policies. And then we ventured into the healthcare systems. But even during that period, most of the loans that the World Bank gave were loans for infrastructure. The idea was to help countries develop economically. But it was very hard, even during the 90s, I worked there between 1992 and 1997, to get the World Bank board to lend money for operational expenditures, including pharmaceuticals. We did it, but it, it took a little bit more effort. It was mainly infrastructure. And then uh, during the, the Bretton Woods also include the, includes the IMF and the GATS that was later turned into WTO, the World Trade Organization, in 1995. Uh, the World Bank during the 90s to replace a little bit the WHO, the World Health Organization. I think that now WTO plays even a much more important role than the World Bank did during the 90s. Then we have the United Nations system, and uh, those institutions have been weakened because most of the budget goes to pay for salaries, and they don't have that much budget for special programs anymore. But they. They play an important role, the <coughs> United Nations Conference for Trade and Development, the United Nations Development Program, all those deal mainly with economy and trade. And then in health, you have WHO, the World Health Organization, UNAIDS, UNITAID, especially for AIDS programs, and UNICEF. And then you have this other phenomenon that in global health is very important, is the public-private partnerships. Bill Gates today has more to say about what happens in global health than WHO does, because his budget is double than what the budget of WHO for programs. And there are other public-private partnerships around, but that's probably the most important one. How do they influence what happens in countries? Uh, the Bretton Woods institutions is through loans and structural adjustments. They, those have a great impact in the economy. And the WTO does it through trade agreements. And we'll talk a little bit more. Um, there is someone who is going to talk about trade agreements and pharmaceuticals, so I'm not going to dwell on that. But we'll, I'll focus a little bit on what are the trade agreements and that have an impact in public health. And they enforce those uh, programs 
through disciplinary actions. And sometimes it's just trade sanctions in the area of trips. If there is a country that really doesn't respect the intellectual property rights agreement, the U.S. trade representatives put this country in a list, the list of the, three, the special list 301. That means people listed there because they dare to issue a compulsory license like Thailand has done or Brazil have done. Those, those countries that are listed there are considered not friendly for private investment. And so that has a lot of repercussions in the economic development of a, of a country. There are also instances where countries manage to destabilize a, a particular government, and there is also army intervention to a, when things get extreme. There is another element that we used to control what other countries done, and that's foreign aid. And we have some multinational institutions, regional banks, uh, international banks, but we also have bilateral agencies. Most countries have bilateral agencies. And when a country gives aid to another country, usually we have, and even the World Bank used to have conditionalities. I'll give you money, but you have to follow certain policies. Otherwise, you are not eligible to receive my loan. And then we also use a lot of technical assistance, and by sending our experts, we change the culture of the decision makers in other countries, and we influence what policies they approve or don't approve. I mentioned that I think WTO is playing an important and an increasing role, and sometimes public health specialists, we don't pay enough attention to that, but uh, they are extremely important in my mind. One of the, the agreements that are more important for public health are those that have, I have listed there, the GATS agreement. Uh, David will talk more about this, but it deals with who can provide services where and where patients can go for services, and that governs a little bit uh, medical tourism, uh, the privatization of services in certain developing countries, and may have an influence on brain drain. Uh, but David will go on that. The agreement on agriculture, I have included it here because uh, through those agreements, we have a great deal of influence on the economies of different countries. The, the corn industry or the corn uh, peasants in Mexico have been badly damaged by our, by our policy of subsidi subsidizing corn production in the U.S. But the same thing happens in Europe. Europe subsidizes agricultural workers, and the Africans are saying, if, if you just stop subsidi subsidizing your agricultural workers, our GDP would go up, and we wouldn't need any of your foreign assistance. But we refuse to change that, that rule. So th that agreement has a lot of influence in health, because health and economy are linked together healthier uh, healthier economies have healthier people, healthier, healthier people can work and can go to schools and they can become wealthier. So there is a loop on those two things. There is the agreement on the application of sanitary and phytosanitary measures that has deals with food safety. The, the agreement on technical barriers to trade, this is extremely important because it governs what labels can and cannot say. 
and that has to do with the labels even in wine bottles or in uh, cigarette packages and things like that. So even if you are very interested in limiting smoking, you may not be able to search, say certain things in the uh, packets of cigarettes because that might limit trade. Those, that's why they are called trade agreements. They are written by the ministers of trade from the different countries. And sometimes trade is more important than health. So, uh, and so the health people have been latecomers and to all those issues. Then the agreement on trade-related investment measurements, those have opened doors to private investment in different countries. Like in, before NAFTA, an insurance company that wanted to set routes in Mexico had to have more than 50% of the capital had to be Mexican capital. After NAFTA, that's no longer true. You can have practically uh, foreign-owned companies setting place in Mexico, and the same happens in other countries. The agreement on subsidies, that's something that has also limited what countries can subsidize and not subsidize and has an impact in the economy. And then the trade-related intellectual property rights agreement, which I think is crucial for pharmaceuticals, not only for developing countries, but also for countries here, because it has ex extended the patent period for a lot of medicines and has increased the price that we are paying for medicines all over the world for a longer period of time. One thing to take into account is that, as I said, trade agreements are set for trade and healthcare is second. So when the WTO has to settle a dispute, usually trade is more important than health. And that has meant that out of 500 health disputes that had an impact on health, WTO always ruled in favor of trade and against health, except in one case, in France, where uh, France wanted to ban the importation of asbestos from Canada. And in this case, because there is a lot of uh, knowledge about asbestos and mesoteliomas, uh, which is a lung, uh, cancer of the lung, WTO rule in favor of France. But for all the, in the, all the other cases, it has ruled against countries trying to change policies that would have an impact on health. Like in the case of Thailand, Thailand wanted to ban the importation of tobacco. But because they are tobacco producers, they could not ban the importation of tobacco. Uh, in Europe, they didn't want to import cattle from the US because we treat them with hormones. Well, WTO ruled against that. Uh, the US wanted tougher sanctions, tougher standards on uh, gasoline. They couldn't do it because that would have damaged Venezuela and Brazil. And the list goes on. Uh, we are allowing more <laughs> pesticides residues in f food because otherwise we would be damaging other nations. And also, it used to be that we could not have uh, unpasteurized milk products in our shelves in the supermarkets. Now it's marked, but we do have them. Uh, so the rest of my presentation is going to be go around how globalization is impacting health, and I, am, I think I'm going to make an argument for how globalization has led to a further stratification of uh, income classes around the world, which means that there is poor people that are 
more vulnerable to disease, and there is also differential exposure to disease, and I think that poor people are being more exposed to certain chemicals, and that has an impact on how we live. And then also through loans, uh, the World Bank has managed to change or influence policy in developing countries and change the characteristics of the healthcare system. The health system <coughs> usually eats around 90% of the resources that we have for health, but uh, the impact on health is very limited. Only around 10% of our health status relates to the performance of the healthcare system. The rest of our health status depends on how, on our environment and our lifestyle. And I would argue that our lifestyles is heavily influenced on the environment. On the environment. And then genetics. Genetics contribute around 20%, 10% is uh, the medical care system in the U.S. Those are things that were studied in the U.S. And, and then uh, the rest is the environment and behavior. This is a statistic from the World Bank, a table from the World Bank. And as you can see, the economy has been growing. But if you look at who has benefited from that growth, uh, the, the gray line is the, 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 the lighter line is the higher income countries. So you can see that those who have benefited from globalization are the high income countries more than the low-income countries. So the, among countries, there has been as an stratification. Poorer countries are poorer, have become poorer, and richer countries have become richer. And within countries, we could probably make the same um, parallel if we look at them, with a few exceptions. But in the majority of cases, that has been the case. I have not studied this directly, but the impact of trade in the environment are responsible for a lot of diseases that we have here. Um, and uh, WHO estimated that almost 25% of the disease and injury is determined by the degradation of the environment. And we have seen an upsurge of malaria and vector control diseases in many developing countries that are also a consequence of environmental degradation. Okay. Uh, the other thing that I think is extremely important is that uh, because of trade agreements, we have a lot of maquila industries and a lot of transnationals that are setting their industries in countries where they have less environmental controls and less government, less salaries. So WTO agreements does not does not say anything about the protections and the environmental controls that those industries should have and the protections that they should give to the to the workers. So they go, they move from Mexico to Nicaragua, from China, wherever there is uh, less protection and cheaper labor. And I am not going to go into that, but. It, we don't pay enough attention to occupational health and occupational injuries. It's a huge um, issue that it's not being tackled, and that affects also negatively women and children. The nutrition habits uh, are also being influenced by trade. You see Nestle, Monsanto, uh, genetically modified grains all over the world. Uh, we are very good at regulating tobacco in the U.S., and probably in Europe, but those companies are not 
starving, they are moving to the developing countries where they have a market and they are marketing it very well. Uh, the IMF and the World Bank have been trying to, I, and I cannot go in depth here, but I do have a lot of information on that. We have been trying to, when I was at the World Bank, that was my role to a certain extent, was to try to sell the U.S. healthcare system to developing countries. <laughs> they had national health systems, but governments in their mind are corrupt when they work for the government, or people are corrupt when they work for the government. They are not corrupt when they work for the private sector. So we had to promote the private sector. Uh, <laughs> and we also promoted cuts in social programs that led to a lot of people falling in deep poverty. Uh, so I think I, I am short of time, so I'm going to skip that. But I, I think that what I have seen in Latin America is really that we have damaged the public health systems. We have done it in, in Mexico. We, I, I would say we, the health expenditure has increased a lot, and I don't see the benefits of that huge cost increases. The same goes for Colombia or would go for Chile. Thanks to that. So I hope that by now I have convinced you a little bit more that probably the trade agreements have had an influence on the economy and, by, and they have affected the household income. They have changed exposures to risks in the environment through the industrialization and also through the proletarization of workers uh, in, in the maquila industry. And they have changed the characteristics of the health systems through health reform and, and trade agreements. And that has limited a little bit access to health care for those who are in the lower socioeconomic strata. Um, so the, the other point that I wanted to make is that although we tend to blame governments for what they do in healthcare. Actually, their hands are a little tied by what these international agreements do. So the solutions to the health problems are no longer a national issue. They are more of an international issue, and it requires working through those international groups. Uh, some people have said that globalization the way we are doing it now since the 1970s is another step or another mode of colonization. It used to be countries that colonized another country and took the wealth. Now they are rules that are really favoring transnational corporations, whether those are health insurance or those are uh, transnational industries like General Motors or General Electric. But we have set up a system that is benefiting them at the cost of the environment and the health of many workers. And some people have said that the instruments of domination are those multinational institutions. If you look at who dominates the World Bank, it's mainly between the U.S., a few countries in Europe, and Japan. They control more than 50 percent of the votes at the World Bank vote. The director of the president of the World Bank has to be a U.S. president. At the IMF, it's basically the same, but the president has to be a European. In WTO, in theory, the decision-making process is more equitable. Every country has a vote, but countries that have more economic power have more votes. <laughs> well, not, they don't have more votes. They have more voice. And uh, so things are a little 
tilted. And even when you look at uh, what are the seats in the permanent uh, security council, it tends to be also countries that are powerful. The other countries don't have the same voice. So uh, the problems that low- and middle-income countries are facing are heavily influenced by those rules, and it's at that level that we need to change the balance of power and try to give more power to those that are in the lower-income scale. And I'll be open to questions afterwards. Thank you, Dr. Homedes. We appreciate that very much. I'm going to just try to quickly get this over to Dr. Warner's slide so we can give you as much time as possible to do that. Okay, and let me quickly introduce to you our second speaker. Uh, Dr. David Warner is a professor of uh, public affairs in the School of Public Affairs of the University of Texas at Austin. He holds degrees in Princeton and Syracuse, and many of you know that he is an expert in health policy research, and I'll turn it over to him so that he can uh, share what he has to say. Thank, thank you very much. Uh, I'm going to take a very... A, a more specific look at uh, trade and services. And uh, one thing in terms of economic impact on developing countries, I think Nuri is right in many cases, the exceptions, although they're not exceptions in terms necessarily of environmental degradation, are, of course, China and maybe to a lesser extent India, although I'm, I'm not quite sure where they are. I mean, there's no question that China's GDP, at least, has quadrupled over the last. Right. But, of course, they're also 33% of the population of the world. <laughs> it's not. Uh, and Brazil, maybe, too. But I'm not sure. But, okay, let me just, before I, I get into mode two, uh, the General Agreement on Trade and Services was an addition to the uh, G G General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, GATT, and what it did was, was essentially call for the liberalization, and by liberalization I mean uh, uh, encourage competition and uh, make it possible to enter other countries. Uh, and there was a, an associated thing called TRIPS, which will be talked about later with, with regard to pharmaceuticals. And essentially what it says, there's four modes of trade and services. Mode one, and, and this applies to healthcare too. Mode one is when the provider of the service is in one country and the consumer of the service is in another country. A good example would be uh, uh, telemedicine, where uh, the doctor is at Baylor Hospital and the patient is in Cornavaca. Or a case where uh, maybe Hillcrest contracts with Indian radiologists at night. And, uh, or, uh, or could be contracting uh, to send all of their uh, dictation to Ghana and get it back transcribed the next day. All of those things are going on, and that's mode one. Mode two is when, the, is when the consumer goes to another country to get a service. So it's basically a situation where medical tourism, or you, uh, and we're going to get into that in a lot of detail, so I, I don't, that's pretty straightforward. Mode three is when uh, a company basically 
sets up a branch abroad. So there's some examples here in Texas. Uh, Baylor uh, uh, Hospital in Dallas uh, invested in and helped develop something called the International Hospital Corporation, which uh, in turn uh, owns something called SEMA, which has four hospitals in Mexico, one in Costa Rica, and then under another name, I think, uh, runs four or five hospitals in Brazil. And in addition, they may provide a little bit of medical consultation. But these hospitals were set up uh, uh, essentially in those markets, but with some know-how uh, from Dallas. Another example is Christus Health, which uh, is a kind of a chain of about uh, 30 hospitals in Louisiana, Texas, Arkansas, maybe somewhere else. It includes Santa Rosa in San Antonio, Spahn Hospital in Corpus, I think uh, St. Elizabeth's in Beaumont, and, and, and a number of others that you might be familiar with. They entered into a for-profit partnership with McGur the Magurza family in Monterey that owned two hospitals, one in Satillo, one in one in uh, Monterey, and have since built another five or six hospitals. So Christus Magurza is kind of got a, a chain of hospitals in Mexico, primarily serving Mexicans. I mean, they told me that on average, maybe six Americans are in their thousand hospital beds on a given day. So it's not it's not that they're they have opened a hospital in Reynosa, which they hoped would attract uninsured and other other customers from the U.S., but the current uh, problems in Reynosa have, have, have reduced that. And then the fourth example is where the provider, an individual provider, goes and provides services, not necessarily on a commercial basis, but if you, for instance, even a medical missionary would be an example of somebody essentially who was engaging in mode four trade and services, although generally at a very low price. <laughs> so, so those are the four modes, and they apply not only to healthcare, they apply to all kinds of other services, like transportation, uh, or telecommunications generally, and, uh, and that's what the GATS regulates. And uh, so the UN has been interested in figuring out, okay, how much trade is there in services? And uh, they've pulled together everybody from the uh, European system to, uh, to others uh, to try to do that. Now, so we're just looking at mode two, which is when somebody, so an export for you, for the United States, is when somebody comes from Saudi Arabia to MD Anderson. An import is when somebody goes to the, from the United States and buys pharmaceuticals, well, not pharmaceuticals, but sees a dentist in uh, Hidalgo <laughs> on, the, on the Mexican side. And, uh, and basically, most of the data is very unreliable. We don't really have very good data on this. Uh, this is kind of what these countries have said their exports are in terms of the world total in 06, it was just a little under seven billion, but it's pretty clear that's a big underestimate because really currently there's about six trillion dollars six trillion give or take three or four hundred million billion dollars being spent on medical care in the world. I mean it's two point five trillion in the in the US. 
And so of that six trillion, uh, six billion would be only one tenth of one percent. So I think it's likely that that trade in in in, in services is uh, in, in you know in terms of people crossing the border is probably at least three or four times that. Uh, and in fact, the U.S. doesn't even report its imports. I don't know whether people don't believe we actually are importing these services, uh, but it's generally known that people are leaving uh, for services. Now, the, uh, there was this remarkable study by Deloitte in 07, which got, was big on the radar screen, and they said 750,000 people went abroad for medical care in 2007, and then 2010, it'll be 6 million. And everybody, you know, U.S. News and World Report had this special issue on medical tourism, as did Time Magazine, as did a number of other things. But what Deloitte failed to notice was that a lot of this was based on on this survey in, uh, that's done when you leave the country. Uh, I think it's a sample, and it asks you what your main purpose is for going abroad. And of the roughly, you know, 1% or more, or about 500,000 people who identified to get medical or dental services, 46%, uh, although they were American citizens, were foreign born. And 36% were non-citizens. And only 17% were U.S. born U.S. citizens. So it's pretty clear these, in most cases, or in many cases, these were people who were going back home and uh, either because medical care was cheaper or socially more acceptable or they have a cousin who would take care of their dental work or, in other words, a lot of reasons why you might go home to get your medical care, just as for U.S. retirees in Mexico, they have a lot of good reasons to come back to the States for their medical care. But it, but it is kind of this. So they were kind of projecting that, but the fact of the matter is it's really a pretty low number of U.S.-born, U.S. citizens that are going abroad for care. And I don't think there's really been a very, in fact, there's actually been a decline in, in kind of 08 and 09 uh, as the economy has gone down. At least that's, that's what the estimates are. Okay. Now, at the same time, medical tourism has been seen as a big deal, and a lot of the hospitals are getting this Joint Commission International Accreditation. And, uh, and, and so what that has done is at least establish somewhat comparable standards uh, uh, to the U.S. Not entirely comparable, but at least standards that are, that are understandable to uh, U.S. regulators and uh, can be used as a justification or maybe as a, as a measure of quality. Now, in most cases, these are domestic entities. Uh, and in fact, uh, even though they've been built for to promote medical tourism and exports from the point of view of the country, the biggest impact, I suspect, has been on import, for import substitution because the Saudi Arabia and the Emirates would always promise citizens that they go anywhere in the world for care, 
if they didn't have it locally. They didn't have much locally, but in the last five or six years, through collaborations with Hopkins, I think even with the Cleveland Clinic, with the with uh, uh, a number of other U.S. entities who were basically getting paid to help develop this, you've developed a substantial capacity, and I, I think probably there will be a lot fewer uh, people coming from the Emirates and from Saudi Arabia to Houston to Cleveland to, to Boston. A lot of And the one place where medical tourism has boomed has been in Asia, and, and in Asia in particular, it's boomed in, uh, in Thailand, in uh, Malaysia, and in Singapore. And there's been a reason for each of those places. Singapore, because it's seen as a comparable health system to the US or Europe. And so businesses have, uh, have uh, encouraged people to go to Singapore if they get sick when they're, when they're in, in Asia. And there have been a lot of people who are willing to pay top dollar, especially from, uh, especially people of Chinese descent in Indonesia and uh, uh, who go there as well. But Singapore is more expensive, too. It's not that far in terms of expense from the U.S. Thailand, everybody knows about, well, maybe not, but Bomberngard is what uh, people talk about. They have a million uh, uh, patients but they count a patient multiple times. But Bomergard is a very fancy big hospital uh, in, I guess it's in Bangkok. And, uh, and it has got a number of different things. Its biggest claim to fame is plastic surgery. And uh, in fact, it has some female surgeons who specialize in eyebrows who uh, do a huge business kind of or eyes as well as eyebrows in with Japanese customers because Japan will actually pay I think about 60% of the cost if you go abroad for care thinking that it's cheaper <laughs> from their point of view uh, but they also do uh, quite a bit of, uh, of uh, uh, you know they do do real medical tourism where people are going for the beach but they're also going maybe for some plastic surgery as well and Malaysia, really, because you can have an Islamic uh, situation for people coming from the Gulf and from Indonesia. Uh, uh, and, so, and so that's kind of a, that's really the one place where there's a tremendous amount of medical tourism going on, I think. Uh, Christus and Baylor that are in the, in the business, you've got the Apollo chain in, host, uh, chain in India, which is developing some joint <laughs> ventures. Parkway in Singapore has a couple, Christus and in, in, in International Hospital Corporation. Now, there's also some export of other therapies like traditional Chinese medicine and Ayurvedic uh, uh, medicine where people go there to get trained and then come here and set up business or, uh, or vice versa. Well, not vice versa, but I mean, some people come from there to deliver services too. And uh, let's go on. So essentially, there's six categories who could be part of this mode too. There's consumers who are traveling abroad for medical care, medical tourism. Tourists who get sick when they're abroad, which is not that unusual, especially as 
as retire as retirees uh, try to fill out their bucket list and, <laughs> and, uh, and are, are more susceptible to getting sick. Retirees abroad who've actually moved abroad for care, you know, and and come back. People live like in Chapala or uh, other places in Mexico or Costa Rica. And there's a strong reason for people to move abroad. I mean, there I've interviewed quite a few because one of the things we've been looking at is Medicare coverage in Mexico uh, for retirees there. And you talk to I talked to one woman. She said, "Well, my husband had a heart attack. He was 60. He couldn't work anymore. We had a house that was worth 500,000. We still owed 200,000 on it. We uh, we paid 14,000 a year in property taxes." And about three or four thousand dollars a year, and he'd like moved to Chapala. We, from our equity in our house, we bought a house that was comparable. We still have a hundred thousand left over. We have no payments. Our property taxes are fifty dollars a year, and no heat and light because it's always seventy degrees. And on this basis, we can live on Social Security and a small pension, and never be, never be a burden to our children. And if we end up needing somebody to come in and help us, it's available. So, in fact, there's, uh, I think, large possibilities for retirement abroad uh, that make a lot of sense to a lot of families. Uh, then you've got temporary migrant workers, which is also a big issue. And right now we've got over 200 million people living in a country other than the one they were born in. So we have huge numbers of people who are kind of no longer in their home social security system or health system. And maybe some of them are like the people we looked at on the airplanes. But the whole problem of putting together some kind of integrated social security system, some kind of health benefits for their dependents back in the country they came from, and some ability for them to take their health benefits with them when they retire after spending 30 or 40 years in the country they're currently living in are all challenges and none of which are fully done. Within Europe, it's, it's being done pretty much, but between Europe and elsewhere, it's not, and certainly between the U.S. and Mexico, it's, it's not. In fact, we don't even uh, totalize uh, Social Security, and in fact, we know that there's 10 or 12 people well, at least eight or nine million people working with bogus Social Security numbers, and uh, all that money is building up and will save the Social Security system, but it won't do much <laughs> for the workers. Uh, and But you also have cross-border commuters, with some of whom have multinational coverage. There have been some health plans in California developed that uh, if you lock into Mexico, you only get your services in Mexico, it, it's a dual choice, but it kind of you have a five thousand dollar deductible in the U.S., no deductible in Mexico, or it's the premium substantially less. Uh, in Texas, we've tried to get that through, but it uh, keeps getting beaten back. I mean, legislators and Governor Perry, in fact, was all for it last time, but I would say the THA and the TMA more or less felt that <laughs> that that shouldn't happen. And uh, then you've got, and, and so that would be more like an integrated health system. Okay. Uh, so who, why do people travel abroad? They travel abroad because either they want to get higher quality than they get at home or they want lower cost. 
or they want to get something that's unavailable on a timely basis at home, either because they have waiting lists, because it's illegal, maybe abortion in Ireland. It's, uh, it's something on a long waiting list for... Uh, 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 they're on a long waiting list for, uh, I'm just going a little fast here. This will all be on the website, right, when we're done. Okay. Uh, uh, maybe they want to go to a stem cell clinic because they've heard that'll be a good thing. They want a liver or kidney transplant. They're on a long waiting list in the U.S. Fertility and other services. I mean, those are, those are some of the people who are going abroad. Uh, and actually, the, uh, the interesting study done in Minneapolis of people who had left the waiting list for kidneys and gone abroad, 11 people had done it, and uh, everybody th or 12 people had done it. Everybody thinks, well, you know, these are rich Americans going abroad to buy kidneys. But it turned out that 10 of them were Somalis who went to Pakistan. One was an Iranian who went back to Iran where it's actually legal to buy kidneys. I mean, it's the only place in the world that it's, there's a fully free market. <laughs> and, uh, and one had gone to China. So I'm not going to go into great detail here. I, I do want to talk a little bit more about these retirees abroad. Uh, as a website, I've, I've done a number of projects on people with Medicare in, uh, in, in Mexico and They've been agitating Congress to try to get this kind of coverage. And the congressmen say, well, how many of you are from my district? And uh, you can see kind of these earlier studies we've done and the current study we're doing is I thought about it and said, well, there's probably about eight congressmen who have a lot of people from their district who would like to have Medicare cover them when they're traveling or when they uh, uh, are retired. And those were basically uh, Congress people who have a lot of constituents who are born in Mexico. And so there's two, there's three in the Dallas area and there's about seven in the LA area. And so we've been kind of working within those districts to see it. Now, if you go to www.medicareinmexico.us, you will see both the, and if any of you know somebody who was born in Mexico that has Social Security, you can ask them to take our survey. <laughs> so we, uh, the more people we can have take it, the better. But it's in both English and Spanish. But if you scroll down, you'll also see links to the other studies we've done. So uh, I, I'll, I'll cut it off at this point. Thank you. We do have questions. We have time for a question. There's one right there in the back. Yeah. <clears throat> oh, excuse me. Yeah. Perhaps we'll have two. We'll see. Okay, go ahead. Yes. My question is for Dr. Alvarez. Uh, my name is Carlos Romero de Napia. I am part of the North Texas Export District Council. And I am familiar with some of the scenarios that you presented regarding trade agreements and manufacturing done overseas due to cheaper labor, environmental, lower standards. Uh, and it is true to that. But I disagree with you in one element, that global companies value local stability 
not just economic stability and political stability, but also environmental stability. And I don't think that HP benefits going to Mexico and China to pollute. And I happen to work with some of those companies as a supplier, and pretty much the standards that they have in the U.S. to operate, they apply them in the countries that are operating. Some of those standards are more restricted than the local government standards. So does your research reflect some of that? No. <laughs> No, but that's not the bulk of the research that I do. I, in fact, I have done quite a bit of work at the U.S.-Mexico border, and it's extremely hard to get into the maquilas industry, and it's easy to smell <laughs> the pollution of the maquila industry when you go to Matamoros or Reynosa. Or, so it doesn't reflect it, but the world is very wide, and I assume that there are companies that are very responsible, and they do apply the same rules that they apply here. But the majority of the companies apply the rules of the country. That's all they abide by. And usually the rules of those countries are lower than the rules that we apply here. And there is a tendency, and what other people have said, is that they tend to migrate to where there are the lowest standard. And to me, what you say makes sense if you have a a responsible company because some of the environmental controls are not that expensive. Uh, so it wouldn't take much to be more responsible in that regard. It's my understanding that I am I'm not an engineer. Time. Okay, thank you so much, Dr. Homedazan. Dr. Warner, would you please give him an hand?